Hi, this is Andrea Borcha. And I'm Charles Wilchin. This is Far Stuff. The Internet of Things podcast. This week on Far Stuff. We're talking to Machik Kranz, Vice President of Cisco's Corporate Strategic Innovation Group and author of the book, Building the Internet of Things. In his book, he shares over a decade of experience using the IoT to implement new business models, disrupt competitors, and transform industries. My name is Maciek Krenz. I've been working for Cisco for 17 years. I've been in uh, the networking uh, slash technology industry for 30 years. My passion has been to either create new markets or to grow new markets. And the Internet of Things is one example of that. There are not very many companies that can actually um, that can actually create markets or grow markets, and Cisco is one of them. And I've been fortunate enough to uh, uh, to be involved in a couple of these efforts. That's what's fun about it is sort of uh, you don't think about your job as just collecting paycheck. And of course, it's, you know, these things are important, but uh, I, I kind of like to focus on missions and pick your mission and see if I can uh, be either a, a member of a coalition of a willing or drive the coalition of a willing to make it happen. And uh, that's what makes it fun. I like coalition of the willing. That's a good way to put it. When did you first get a sense that the Internet of Things was going to be a thing or this convergence of technological change was going to result in this thing that we call the Internet of Things? You know, it, it is funny because um, I first got involved in what we now call Internet of Things, probably in early 2000s. And um, at that time, we started working on an industrial um uh, Ethernet. So basically, taking Ethernet technology and implementing it on on in, on in industrial settings, on manufacturing floors, and so forth. And to be honest, at that time, I actually thought it was really tough. It was um, uh, when you when you think about uh, sort of um, the traditional Cisco business. So we work with IT organizations. We go into um, sort of a temperature control environment. So you have uh, typical standards. Uh, you're working with one or two um, uh, uh, standard organizations like IEEE or IETF. Here, you basically get into all kinds of crazy environments. So from submarines that need to uh, withstand um, torpedo attacks to um, um, to plant floor, uh, to uh, operating in some extreme temperatures from uh, really, really uh, uh, cold areas in the middle of Canada to really uh, tropical and dry and uh, sandy climates and uh, in the middle of open uh, pit mine in Australia, right? So, so the complexity of dealing with multiple form factors and uh, lots of different uh, um, certification requirements, uh, much more extreme conditions, was made it challenging. But it wasn't really until, I would say, six years ago when I, uh, I think we sort of realized a couple of things. You know, traditionally, we've been selling to uh, uh, to sort of service providers or IT folks, um, and um, and sometimes to consumers. So these were sort of the main buying centers. We realized that a line of business folks, uh, so people who run businesses, plants, logistics systems, actually uh, have become major technology buyers. And so there was a sort of a first aha for us, right? And was that a customer base that Cisco actually addressed before, or was that all new for Cisco? It was it was mostly new for us, uh, but but not only from a technology perspective. It was also from uh, how you interact with these folks and how do you actually package the solution, right? So, when you think about a person who runs the plant, what they care about? They care about quality. They care about cost. They care about um, productivity, top and bottom line. They really don't care much about technology. 
right? So you need to basically go to them and say, hey, here is the value proposition for you. I can save you 20% in cost, or I can, I can increase your uptime if you're a car manufacturer by 70% or something like that, right? So it's a business value proposition. And then you need to put together the whole solution. They really don't care about whether you have a switch or a router. They think about how can you help me improve my business, right? So this actually had a big implication for us um, because um, we... Um, we now um, had, had to have a completely different uh, value proposition and go to market. So from interacting with a very technical audience, let's say in the IT organization, now you're interacting with a very business-minded audience and you need to uh, create, uh, again, speaking of coalitions of the willing, create a partner ecosystem of folks that would create a whole solution. Right, um, uh, from integrators to um, people who understand manufacturing plans to understand uh, um, uh, how to uh, pull all of these things together. Do you feel like the offering that Cisco has and the IoT um, technology is at a place where this is a very easy decision for them, or are you still kind of using them to develop out and build out concepts? I would say right now, we actually have the right offerings, but it has taken us 15 years. And the the lessons learned were on the technology side. So developing all these different versions of products, it was learning how to interact with these um, folks that run the plants. We didn't have the relationships. Um, It was also learning, um, uh, you know, uh, the language. Uh, uh, For example, you know, traditionally we would interact with a technical audience and we would talk about, okay, well, here is the protocol, here is the MTBF, our buzzwords, right, that we use. Right. <laughs> People that we interact, say the person who runs the plant, they don't probably don't even know what Ethernet is, right? No. <laughs> but, so you need to speak their language. You need to talk about what they care about. So, you know, from that perspective, our journey in IoT started with working um, with some of the key players who were sort of visionary on, let's say, manufacturing side or industrial side, uh, like Rockwell, like Honeywell, like GE and others, who had these relationships with the line of business folks, um, because that was the primary business. They were selling PLCs or other equipment there. And we partnered with them. And it was sort of a marriage made in heaven, right? Because, um, uh, for example, Rockwell, and we've been working with uh, Rockwell for 15 years now, and uh, they know manufacturing uh, area. They know um, the automation space. They have relationships with these folks. But there was another transition that was uh, that they were sort of driving, which was migration from proprietary and specialized systems into open systems, like Ethernet, like IP, things that we take for granted, but there was sort of a new thing in the industrial space. So we brought the, the technology and the know-how in how to build these kind of systems, and they brought the relationships and understanding of the manufacturing system. So together, we actually could develop the products and solutions. Was there any concern about security? Because I'm, I'm sure, especially if you're not uh, tech savvy, when you're saying, we're going to put everything on the Ethernet or the Internet, then people start getting nervous. You're absolutely right. And it's sort of a, another f- fascinating story because um, when I got involved in, the, especially in the industrial world, uh, the prevailing concept around security was um, security by obscurity. So basically, I am not going to connect my plant, just picking on the plant, right. um, to my enterprise network or to internet. However, a couple of things happened. Uh, one was, uh, I don't know if you remember, uh, I think it was four years ago, um, a Stuxnet malware happened. And so it's a great spy story, by the way. Um, but 
but basically this virus or this malware basically got um, uh, proliferated through the industrial production facilities. Somebody took a, a thumb drive, plugged it into Windows 95 machine sitting on the manufacturing floor, oh and and this thing sort of wreaked havoc. So as a re- and, and, and so as a result, the industry sort of started panicking. They started putting things like firewalls in front of these Windows 95 machines, which, by the way, did absolutely nothing, <laughs> right? Um, and uh, then they, uh, um, but then they also started realizing that, well, this whole concept of kind of separating ourselves from the outside world um, was uh, it wasn't working to begin with. They discovered that they had virtual private networks going from contractors and vendors into their plants and so forth. So they, it's been a kind of interesting journey, but. Where we now, we are actually in a much better shape, uh, at least from the business perspective. So now increasingly, uh, chief security officers have a responsibility not only for the IT security, but also for what we call operational technology security, but for the entire plant. They started um, implementing uh, sort of policy-based architectures. Um, they started uh, implementing sort of the concepts of before, during, and after. So instead of Okay, I'm going to just to prevent the bad guys from entering my plant. And by the way, probably around half of these um, incidents actually uh, uh, are created by people internally also, right? So I need to think about that as well. Um, but then you start realizing, okay, well, uh, I probably will get hacked. So how quickly I can discover that I have been hacked and I, I, how quickly I can discover what data has been compromised and how do I re- uh, remediate the problem? So instead of... I don't want to mention names, but instead of uh, you know companies sort of discovering that they've been um, hacked and their credit cards have been stolen, the months later they can actually discover this seconds or minutes after that happened, right? And um, and so started implementing basically modern security te- technology architectures, best practices. But having said that, uh, on the security topic, obviously it's actually been a a, a very timely topic. We've heard a, a lot about. Uh, sort of IoT-based cyber attacks recently, right? And to be honest, it's been also a wake-up call for the vendor industry as well. So I would say traditionally, until recently, major security vendors have not invested as much as they should have in IoT security. Uh, Roughly 70% of IoT-related cyber attacks, uh, according to Verizon study, actually have been leveraging known vul- vulnerabilities, basically things that we know are broken and we know how to fix them. We know as an industry that we can do better, right? So it's been a wake-up call for the industry that for us we can actually start implementing, again, modern security techniques. Um, and uh, now the industry is starting to work together on joint frameworks and uh, accelerating standards and sharing best practices. But um, to close on the security topic, you know, my, my philosophy is that security is everybody's responsibility, right? And, 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 and IoT is not, uh, is not an exception. So, yes, vendors, um, and they are now doing more. Yes, businesses moving sort of from a stone age to a modern way of how you think about security. But it's also employees, right, integrating physical security and, um, and digital security. So, for example, if somebody is walking behind you, um, you know, and tail- tailgating you to a uh, restricted area, don't do that, right? <laughs> sense sort of implementing security in your, in your everyday life, but also users, right? And, and yes, I think uh, the, the business vendor community can do a lot of things to improve security. But at the end of the day, 
we as users also need to be cognizant. If I'm connecting something, I better sort of at least think about the security implications of that. What's amazing is that you have a scenario where it sounds like for five years, maybe a decade, you were learning this new class of customer. Yep. The people that were kind of their existing vendors were learning about uh, second nature to you, open standards, things like that. Yep. And everyone was learning about security. It's, it's kind of fascinating because it's sort of this chicken and egg problem times three that you just had to work through for, for 10 years. And hopefully that's paying off now, but it's what a challenge, what a mountain that was to climb. That's sort of a funny thing because I would say we spent the first decade of this century sort of learning about each other, as you mentioned, uh, new buying center line of business for technology buyers. Um, the move from sort of proprietary or specialized systems into um, open systems. Uh, there was a move um, sort of in the business structures from sort of a 20th century of doing business for a lot of um, uh, players and vendors, meaning um, uh, proprietary systems, uh, uh, my company will do entire, let's say, train station or entire oil rig into uh, into the modern way of doing things, what things we take for granted, which is I'm going to build a successful business based on open standards, and I'm going to collaborate with um, a bunch of my peers to put a solution together. There's another aspect of it that we were learning over the first decade, which was Two organizations that uh, uh, used to operate, I kind of joke, uh, as if they were on different planets. So IT and operational technology or OT. So when you think about your traditional technology business, right, we have an IT organization, and most of us in the Valley have been interacting with IT organizations. But there is a uh, sort of a parallel organization. We call them operational technology. These are the folks that operate the plants or all fields or logistics systems. They also had, let's say, networking gurus and networking teams or uh, data, uh, data and application teams. But these teams have actually not been talking to each other. So when you talk to, in, in most cases, when you go to IT team and say, uh, hey, are you, um, are you responsible for networking on a plant floor? They would say no. Uh, and operational technology people who operate, let's say, the plant, they would say, oh, we never talk to the IT folks. So, you know, I, I've been using this parallel uh, from, uh, you know, there was this book, uh, Men Are From Mars and Women Are From, <laughs> from Venus. But what happened um, was sort of fascinating. There were a couple of things that happened. One is some of the sort of the most compelling solutions that industry started to implement, IoT solutions, require the data to flow uh, from the plant to the uh, enterprise network to the cloud. So these things had to start connecting. Um, the value proposition of standard-based infrastructure was too compelling from the cost and reliability and security perspective, right? So suddenly, these two domains, there was increasingly being forced to start working with each other. And they were really, in most cases, they were kicking and screaming, right? So uh -huh. um, OT folks would say, IT team doesn't understand us. They would schedule, let's say, a, a maintenance window on Saturday night, and we operate the plant 24 by 7, right? IT folks would say, hey, these OT folks, um, they use some 30-year-old technologies, and they are not using modern tools or whatever. But the fascinating thing is that... Um, I started to see increasingly, like, uh, I would say, five or six years ago, where these compelling uh, value propositions sort of forced these two groups to sit in one room 
and to start working together. Increasingly, the IT folks started to report to the operation folks, right? And then suddenly they, they actually had to care. Um, but also, I think IT teams started to realize that they have to become more relevant, right? They have to be re- relevant to the business. And operational technology line of business folks, they operate the business, right? Um, so with all of these things that... Um, Basically, there was sort of this 10 years of incubation of IoT, and then over the last five years, we had a five years of explosion of IoT. Um, but we had to go through the first 10 years to arrive at the, the last five years. <laughs> what is it like today? Are those folks integrated into one group typically now if they're creating them from scratch, or is that integration still being resisted and still happening? I think it varies, varies a lot, but at least the companies that uh, have been uh, implementing IoT for a couple of years, we have seen this integration. Whether either the teams are getting integrated or IT is reporting to the line of business, I've even seen some crazy things like the head of IT and the head of OT being swapped to force the transition, right? So I would say we are halfway through it. And then do you see a development along the same lines of IoT having its own sort of segment in the business or becoming a concern? Because it seems like IoT would, would almost fall under both, especially when you start bringing in 3D printers and, yep. and things that might not fit under IT, but they fit under OT. So I would expect that uh, in the next couple of years, I think this transition of IT and OT sort of converging would actually be concluded for most organizations. You know, for me, IT is has been an enabler or the forcing function for these for these organizations to uh, start working together. But you're absolutely right. I mean, right now, we should look at the compelling, and we can talk about examples of um, of use cases, but the compelling uh, solutions are basically focused on improving efficiency and improving the productivity obviously improving on the existing processes. But if you look at so five to 10 years out, um, IoT will become much more disruptive because IoT is becoming a foundation for other other changes. Like you mentioned, 3D printers and drones and um, uh, AI, right? They're all relying on everything getting connected with everything. So, you know, part of the reason I actually wrote this book was that um, this IoT phenomenon is not only just a technology transition, it's actually a transition in how businesses operate, how teams work together, how the businesses are structured, right? And that's this ITOT is a great example of that. In your book, you mentioned the IoT workforce ecosystem. Is that more what you're talking about with this? Sure. So there are two aspects to the workforce, right? Um one aspect of it is that, like with every major technology and business transition, um, some of the jobs will disappear and some new jobs will be created. Uh, so, for example, today, uh, if you have a remote um, piece of equipment, a meter or, uh, I don't know, an rig, you would send a person over to um, diagnose the problems, to check and, uh, um, and maintain this equipment. With Internet of Things, one of the key use cases is remote asset management and uh, monitoring. You can actually do most of these functions remotely now, right? So the, the, the job of a person going out and checking on a piece of equipment remotely will disappear. The new jobs, however, are being created all over the place uh, around um, handling data, not only data analytics, uh, the data scientists, but um, all kinds of um, uh, data management and programming to um, uh, remote operators to application developers. It is actually fascinating because um, if you look at the U.S. and Western Europe, uh, there are 
tens of thousands of jobs, for example, in manufacturing, they don't, they, they don't get filled every year because um, companies can't find qualified candidates to fill those. So as a result, uh, what sort of leading companies are doing are two things. One is they're investing internally uh, in their workforce. And secondly, they become more creative in how they look for and how they attract talent. Um, so if you look at the first category, it's a big cultural shift, right? In traditional manufacturing, if I'm doing a given job, I would continue to do, to do the same job for 20, 30, 40 years, and the job will not change much. And now we're moving into this new world, which I think in the technology industry, we sort of used to, right? Which is, I have to evolve and learn my skills constantly. So as technology evolves, my role evolves, and I probably will change the job quite often, right? But it's a mindset change, and, and it's also a very different model of how employers and employees interact, where you actually now constantly help employees learn, and new tools, and new um, new ways of interacting, of building things, and so forth. Um, so the second area is around being more creative on the outside. Um, uh, what I've seen is companies, for example, uh, uh, because they, there's a shortage of qualified workers. And by the way, increasingly, for example, people in technology and transportation and manufacturing, we all trying to hire the same people. Um, so what the companies are doing is working, for example, with universities and colleges on creating curricula, right? So that they can actually get their, exactly the person with the right skill set uh, when they graduate. There is a, um, a renaissance of uh, apprenticeships. So in Europe, apprenticeships is sort of a big tradition and big thing. In the U.S., until recently, we haven't had that many, right? But now companies are actually sponsoring and working on um, apprenticeship programs. So, for example, um, uh, in addition, uh, the person in addition to getting a four years of theory and a, and a degree um, in a given field, they, in the last two years of their degree, they would actually work in a company and uh, they would get practical skills, right? And it's a win-win because the person is better qualified to enter the workforce um, and and they, and they also, for the employer, they are more prepared and they have a pra- practical experience instead of uh, instead of theory. Definitely. So, from the from a people people perspective, it's a big change. But also, Andrea, to to comment on your um, other part of the question, it's a big change in how in sort of a business structures, and it really is profound. So, uh, if you think about uh, a traditional vendor, let's say in um, manufacturing or in oil and gas, for example. They were used to this model of, I'm going to build the entire solution myself. Uh, so one stop shop, one company does it all. We know that uh, with the speed of, of change in the technology world, and IoT is a great example of that, that model doesn't work very well, right? So now we're shifting to this concept of building ecosystem of partnerships. Um, so like with, uh, like Cisco, right? We have, um, uh, more than a hundred of partners just in the industrial space, right? Because we, we, when we go and work, for example, with oil and gas company or transportation company or agriculture company, we need to develop the complete solution. And usually there will be three or four or five companies involved in the process. We work a lot with startup community, right? To, so that they can come in and help us build these solutions. But it's a big change for the more traditional industries um, on how they do business both externally and internally. Are there any particular sectors or industries that you see that are jumping for, clamoring for, or best using IoT right now to 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 get ahead? I would say um, the most mature 
markets where IoT again has a history of of, of five to fifteen years. I would say is manufacturing, discrete manufacturing, all in gas. So basically, industrial space, all in gas, um, uh, mining, a lot in transportation, um, uh, and uh, smart cities actually are starting to happen, which is great as well. Um, and we can get into that if uh, if that makes sense. Um, but also, uh, we're starting to see uh, sort of more more business to consumer industries starting to uh, adopt IoT. Although they're sort of earlier in a development cycle, like retail, like healthcare, agriculture, for example, is becoming big as well. Um, and you know, part of the reason I think we see that is if you think about, for example, manufacturing, I would say in the 90s and uh, early 2000s, manufacturing was not uh, the most uh, advanced or leading industry to adopt uh, sort of internet-based technologies, right? Um, but now, uh, if you look at Internet of Things uh, with solutions like co- connected operations or remote operations or preventive maintenance, these types of solutions are actually best suited to help manufacturing folks improve their operations. So there's sort of a, a match made in heaven between technology being ready um, and manufacturing folks actually having a big business need. And it seems like the motivations for them to adopt it are just crystal clear, especially once once you can kind of point to success stories uh, like Harley Davidson, which you talked about a little bit. Yep. Um, if you could talk about a couple of those case studies, I think they really highlight how how I guess not easy, but but how compelling it is for manufacturing to adopt and be an early adopter of these new technologies. I can maybe give you a couple of examples. So, you know, I. Um I've actually actually traveled a lot and talked to a lot of customers, and uh, and and across these these industries, um, I I sort of summarized uh, the solutions into four categories. Uh, so, uh, which is kind of fascinating because um, regardless of what industry you're in, um, I've seen consistently customers and uh, organizations implementing these four categories of solutions. So, the first one is. Uh, connected operations. Um, the second one is remote operations. The third one is um, predictive analytics, and the fourth one is preventive maintenance. So maybe I can give you a couple of examples. Of Please. These. So the f- the first one. Um, so Harley Davidson is actually a great example uh, for the first one because um, uh, before Internet of Things, um, it's fair to say that they were sort of internally operating as a bunch of islands, uh, right? It's uh, even on their manufacturing floor, um, a, a bunch of discrete, separate uh, data islands, and the same for the rest of their processes, from uh, purchasing to uh, to logistics and so forth. So what they did is um, they actually got together um, uh, their uh, operational technology and IT and logistics and other people, and they decided to connect all of these processes, starting with a plant. And then once all of these devices and uh, and then processes were operating on the same network, they added man- man- management and analytics software and so forth. And in the process, they reduced the time that it takes for um, an average order of the custom bike from 18 months, uh, from when I place an order to when I receive the bike, wow. roughly two weeks. So it's a huge, huge change, right? They reduce the time that it takes them uh, to uh, to identify and fix the problem on the manufacturing floor from average two weeks 
to make that is the that is crazy. Is profit. Uh, yeah, and they increased the profitability uh, of uh, of this one plant that when they, did, they got started by three or four percent in the process. Wow! And and do We've you happen to know what compelled uh, maybe them? Maybe less spectacular examples, but Pepsi. Um, uh, we've seen, um, uh, or even Rockwell, even Cisco. Um, we uh, these are not single-digit sort of improvements. There are improvements in twenty, thirty percent uh, in terms of uh, uh, their profitability, in terms of their time to market, in terms of their uh, um, uh, their efficiencies as well. So that's sort of the the first category. Uh, the second one is um, remote asset management. This is probably the most popular one because it's it's actually really easy, right? So, uh, um, and my favorite example I wanted to give you is um, actually a little company in India. And uh, and I, I, I will tell you why I actually mm-hmm. like it um, uh, a bit later. But um, basically um, in India, there was this company that was operating 150 um, ice cream stores. And... <laughs> Uh, in this part, in this part of India, uh, they actually uh, have some power outages quite often. So every store had a generator, and they were supposed to turn the generator on when the power went out. Um, but what the company discovered is that they actually this actually often didn't happen. So as a result, basically the ice cream was melting, then it was um, refrozen. Uh, there was a big health hazard, mm-hmm. all kinds of issues, right? So what they did is they went to this little startup. Um, uh, in, local in India, and asked them, okay, what can we do about it? So the startup basically built like a self-contained uh, temperature sensor. They just drop these sensors into these um, fridges in these stores when they keep the, the ice creams, um, and um, connected these sensors into the network, um, came up with a very easy way of interacting with this inf- information. So, for example, next time there was a, a power outage in the store, um, and the temperature started going up in the fridge, uh, the manager of a store will get alerts, not only text, but also calling their cell phone and so forth, and saying, and with a very simple instruction, so I could check that the door is open, maybe you should close it. Well, maybe the, the, the power is out, turn the generator on, right? And and if the, if the manager did not respond, it would actually escalate all the way to the CEO of the company. The reason I like this use case is that uh, it's... Um, uh, first of all, the ROI was very powerful. So the company saw the 5x return on investment in the first year of deploying mm. the system. Um, but secondly, it's so important that we understand the business problem, not just blindly take a IoT technology that somebody in U.S. deployed and take it to India or Thailand somewhere else, right? You have to first, I call it a, a kind of a being hyper-local, right? So really understand the environment and what problem you're trying to solve and then think about what technology I want to use and um, how I want to use it. Um, so that's the second example. Right, because the scale, the, of, one, uh, the scale of what they did was totally different than what Harley Davidson did, but the return exactly. on investment was still enormous for them. It was, and, and what I loved about it is that it really wasn't rocket science, right? Um, and, um, and, um, and it was a very ingenious way of dealing with the uh-huh. problem, right? So it's 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 uh, the beauty of of these types of examples is that technology exists technology is a tool um and we just need to think about what problems we want to solve um and 
you know, uh, I live in the valley, right? And we are surrounded by technology. And um, we tend to think about um, sort of technology first, right? Oh, here is the, when you, when, so when you ask somebody um, uh, about uh, IoT, they will tell you, oh, this is this low power device connected through LoRa and whatever. whatever. Um, it actually doesn't matter. What matters is start with a customer problem and then figure out what technology you want to use, right? Um, so it's a different mindset. Um, maybe I can give you a couple of more examples. So, Love it. Uh, the, uh, the third category is this, um, uh, what I call, would call um, uh, predictive analytics. And a couple of examples here, but maybe the one I can, I can highlight is actually at Cisco. Um, so we, uh, we actually work with contract manufacturers uh, to, um, uh, to uh, produce our products. And um, our folks uh, started to get focused on energy efficiency, and they um, implemented roughly 1,500 sensors in one of the plants um, in Malaysia and implemented uh, analytic software on top. And started measuring, for example, looking at um, uh, different pieces of equipment and, and, and trying to figure out why this piece of equipment is using more energy than the other and doing sort of basic analytics. And after a couple of months on, on running these systems, they basically uh, were able to reduce the power consumption in the plant by 20%. Wow. Which roughly was, I think, a million dollars um, for this one plant. Um, and and there are plenty of examples like that. Probably the most compelling use case is the fourth one, which is preventive maintenance. But it's also probably the most complicated. Um, um, so when you think about delivery vehicles or when you think about, let's say, um, big open pit mine, um, which I don't know if you've ever been to one, but it's fascinating. It's sort of like a two miles across, one mile deep hole in, a, in, a, in earth in the middle of nowhere, uh, typically. And you see these huge... Um, uh, tracks the busy hole, let's say iron ore uh -huh. um, from the pit to uh, to the station. Um, the problem that the, in this case, what the mining companies were trying to solve, but it applies to any piece of equipment, to be honest, um, was um, when one of these vehicles breaks down, uh, it costs the company two million dollars per day uh, of lost uh, lost profit wow. when the, the the vehicle is not operating. So. Um, and it often would take them weeks to actually fix this truck because uh, they first need to diagnose, then they need to order a part, and they need to deliver the part in the middle of nowhere and, uh -huh. um, and then install <laughs> it. Right. So what they what they what they did is they implemented this um, actually it's a great combination of um, Internet of Things and artificial intelligence. They implemented these um, preventive um, maintenance systems, basically learning on based on past experiences. The system can tell you weeks or months in advance, oh, it looks like one of the um, elements in the engine is getting hot. Means in two weeks, it probably will break down. Why don't you order the part and schedule uh, this truck to go to the shop and you fix it before it breaks, right? So, and these systems actually has become, these systems have become much more accurate over the years. So now you can actually uh, look at um, identifying problems uh, even three months in advance with uh, with uh, 95 and better uh, accuracy or prediction. 
And you see the same systems being implemented, for example, on delivery tracks and uh, on robots and all kinds of systems. So they can order the parts long before they're uh, they're necessary, but not long enough that it becomes kind of a drag on on um, money in the bank. But be ready and switch that out and not lose that two million a day. So that's that really turns out to be one of the the most compelling use cases as far as uh, revenue is what you're saying. You're absolutely right. Right. It's it, it probably is the most most compelling because uh, um, when you think about a lot of these organizations, they care about continued uh, continuous operations, right? And uh, for them, any breakdown, whether this is a vehicle or a robot on a manufacturing floor or any piece of equipment, um, it's sort of it, 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 it's very disruptive. Not just like for example, when you think about the production line, right? Um, it's not if the production line goes down. It's not only the issue with this um, actual facility, but the whole system, right, of deliveries and uh, parts and uh, and miscommitments to customers. So um, they really try very hard to make sure that 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 um, all of these things really operate twenty four by seven. Uh, what I what I find great about your book is that it it really um, encompasses you know, like a, a decade worth of, of learning into a handy guide for people that are kind of entering, um, I guess, entering this phase of, of their business. What do you, um, what do you do about people that are making consumer products? How does this change their world? Uh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Could you repeat the question? Sure. I missed the last question. So, part of it. so this book, I think, you know, just, I have not had a chance to read it all. I'll admit, I won't, I'll cut huh? that part out of the, of the podcast, but for how does this, how does this all apply to folks making consumer products? How does that change their sure. world? Okay. You know, it's, uh, it's actually, um, uh, it's, and if it's kind of, of off topic. That's fine. We don't, we don't have to talk about it either. So just let me know. Is no, it okay no, no, to talk about it? Fine. Um, you know, it's one of the misconceptions about uh, the IoT market, right? We often talk about uh, IoT. The first thing that comes to mind is connected fridge or connected uh, uh, washer and dryer, uh-huh. or whatever, right? And, <laughs> right. Um, and it's it's fair to say that um, uh, I actually do expect that, that some of the biggest disruptions and innovations in Internet of Things will happen in consumer space, but it, but they're not there yet, right? So, um, um, but there are actually a lot of um, a lot of potentially lessons learned for consumer companies. We already talked about security, right? And how you implement enterprise class security best practices into consumer world as well. There are also um, some of the lessons learned in terms of um, um, thinking about what we went through over the last 10 or 15 years in terms of adoption and in terms of um, ease of use, in terms of um, um, in terms of business cases, right? Um, I've talked about this sort of a view of technology out versus um, uh, pr- customer problem in. Um, I still think that in the consumer IoT space, we often talk too much about technology. Okay, I'm going to connect this fridge, even though I have no idea what I'm going to do with it. Right. right? Versus, versus, all right, let's think about the problem we're trying to solve. Like for example, uh, Connected Home is a, is a great example. I don't know how many articles that have been written about, here is the great way of connecting your home. And um, But I, I still struggle with the very few reasons why I would connect 
multiple classes of devices in my home together and um, what they would do together. Some of the emerging use cases are elderly care, right? When you need to have multiple devices to sort of monitor, let's say, an elderly person in the home. Uh, security. But but for the rest of these things, um, it's hard to figure out why I would do it. And then more importantly, how would the vendors make money on it? They're more right? of a nice to have um, than a requirement. That's That sounds like what you're saying. Exactly. And if you, there are lots of people that are uh, hobbyists and enthusiasts and they would want to connect the blinds and fridges and things together. But for the majority of us, I think it's still a sort of a solution looking for a problem. I feel like you really hit the nail on the head there because you also described earlier how when you started to talk IoT to uh, in industrial companies, initially the the sort of the habit of, of companies in the Valley is to be technology centric. And it, it wasn't until you moved to the benefits with the technology kind of being just, look, it's just plumbing. It's really no different than literal plumbing, <laughs> and here's here's the actual benefit to you. And it feels like you're saying that we're not quite at that at that point with the consumer products either, where we're really obsessing about the technologies and not so much about you know what we're going to do with them. It's like, well, what's the benefit? Well, it's cool, <laughs> isn't that enough? Yeah, exactly. Right. And Charles, I think I think you're absolutely right. And it was. Uh, you know, it's it's sort of funny because I I lived all my life in the technology world, and I've written a book about technology is secondary to the business problem, right? But it really is. Um, uh, what I've discovered talking to all of these companies is you really need to start with what is the problem you're trying to solve. To give you an example, um, a couple of years ago, when IoT sort of became hot, suddenly every other startup in the valley started became uh, suddenly became an IoT startup, right? And uh, and I've had so many discussions with these companies that are coming in saying, "I am an IoT platform company. I have this horizontal solution, and isn't my technology great?" And my advice to these startups was, "Don't focus on your technology capability." Focus on solving one small problem in one sub-segment of the IoT market. Because this IoT is actually not a one market. It's a collection of huge, huge markets. So, for example, if you focus on solving a preventive maintenance problem for buses, it's a billion-dollar opportunity. So, start with a customer problem. Don't try to be too grandiose. And... Um, and um, don't worry that, because um, traditionally startups would, say, would want to think about how do I cover the whole space? Don't cover this whole space. Be very specific and very relevant to one market. And once you've actually captured that market, maybe move to another one. But it's a, a bit of a counterintuitive thinking, right? I think that's very wise advice because saying you have an Internet of Things company is like saying you have an Internet company. Well, what does that what does that mean? You know, you can't solve every internet problem. You're not going to solve any every internet problem just because it involves the small internet. devices. <laughs> and that's a fundamental uh, sort of a lesson for me from Internet of Things, which is don't think about technology out. Think about a customer problem in, right? And really get intimate with the customers and with the problem that you are going to solve for the customer. And... Um, and to the point now, to be honest, that when when there's a, a startup that comes in and says, hey, I'm an IoT platform company, I don't even take a meeting because I think <laughs> the point, right? 
Yep, I understand. <laughs> so the good news is that I think that um, uh, both on the think on the startup side as well as on the traditional IT vendor side. Um, you know, one of my worries, to be honest, uh, sort of a separate point, but one of my worries was that with Internet of Things, and this opportunity is so huge, um, that we would start to see a kind of a balkanization of the industry very early on. Sort of like we saw with Internet, as you remember, the the the, uh, the browser wars, right? We saw this in the industrial space in the 90s. The, they had a sort of equivalent. They called them field bus wars. And um, uh, what I've been heartened by is that um, if you look at the vendor industry, um, that you still see to a large extent um, companies like traditional IT companies like Cisco, like Intel, like Microsoft, like uh, Oracle, SAP. You also see some leading, let's say, industrial vendors like Rockwell, Honeywell, and uh, GE and so forth. We all are working together. So there isn't a lot of that Okay, one company creating their own version and their own ecosystems. Like if you go to, uh, we, at Cisco, we've been organizing these venues, we call them IoT World Forums. There are basically 2,000 companies going there and we're all sharing best practices. We're all sharing what learned, what didn't work. You know, in the book, I have this chapter on mistakes, right? We've been sharing a lot about mistakes and how we can learn from each other. And, and, uh, you know, I don't, I don't want to sound naive, but I, I, that, that sort of uh, approach that uh, I've been really uh, happy to see that um, we all are working together on joint standards, architectures, frameworks, uh, best practices, and we can create this market and we can grow that market together. And and the beauty of this is that the opportunity is so big that every company, whether you're a large startup, a large vendor or a small startup, there's plenty of business for everybody. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, this was a lot of fun. Andrea Charles, thank you so much for the opportunity. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us. You've been listening to Far Stuff, the Internet of Things podcast. You can find us on the internet at farstuff.com and at farstuff on Twitter. Get in touch with us using the contact form on our site or email us at podcast at farstuff.com. And hey, if you enjoyed listening to our show, make sure to leave us a review on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you listen to podcasts. And this brings us to the end of our thing. Thanks for listening. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone.